Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Mosaic Life Podcast. It has been my pleasure over the last several years to bring you conversations with leaders who are changing the lives of those around them, their own included, for the better. If you haven't heard yet, the Mosaic Life podcast is coming to a close on June 7th after 150 episodes. It has been such a pleasure sharing these conversations with you, but my time and interests have shifted and you can continue to stay connected with the content I create over on Instagram and TikTok. I mean it when I say there hasn't been a conversation I haven't loved, but these last few are really helping me end the podcast on a high note. My guest today is doing incredible work in Atlanta, building the bridge between affordable housing, communities, and schools, and she's improving the lives of hundreds of people at a time. Dubbed the compassionate capitalist by the media, Margie Stagmeyer is an affordable housing solutionist and a champion of an affordable housing education model successfully piloted within the nonprofit she founded, Atlanta-based Starsea Programs. Stagmeyer has purchased, renovated, and managed more than 3,000 legacy apartment units for the past eight years as co-founder of TriStar, a nationally recognized real estate investment firm in Atlanta. Stagmeyer led TriStar to develop its sustainable housing model that targets blighted and marginalized apartment communities near failing elementary schools. In addition to creating affordable, quality workforce housing, Stagmeyer and TriStar's pioneering partnerships with educators, medical professionals, municipalities, nonprofits, and foundations are reducing tenant transiency and improving outcomes through free after-school programs and summer camps, access to affordable healthcare, and community gardening. A graduate of Georgia State University, she passed the Georgia CPA exam, is the former board chair of the Atlanta Community Food Bank, former vice president of the Atlanta Commercial Board of Realtors, and the author of Real Estate Asset Management, Executive Strategies for Profit Making. Stagmeyer is also active in House ATL and other organizations dedicated to equitable housing. She lives in Atlanta with her husband, John, and her goal with Blighted, Star C, and increasingly with TriStar's work is to create an equitable housing education movement, starting with and always improving upon the open source model presented in her book. Please welcome to the podcast, my guest, Margie Stagmeyer. Margie, how are you? I am doing great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing so well. I've been so excited to talk with you. The work you're doing is incredible. Um, and I, this is a very weird time um, you know, in a lot of ways. Uh, the housing market, of course, but I, I know you deal in a, a very specific uh subset of that. I just, I, you know, I want, I, my frustration comes from somebody who's looking to buy their first home and it's just become so difficult. And, you know, for somebody who doesn't necessarily have the means finding affordable housing, it's just, it's, I can't imagine how difficult that must be right now. It's extremely difficult. And it's not, it's not just in your city, it's throughout the United States and actually it's throughout the world right now. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, it's, 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 terrible. And it feels, it feels so helpless uh, seeing, I mean, you know, I I live in a big city, you live in a big city and I, 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 I probably see people uh, who are homeless, um, if not every day, every other day. And it it, it feels helpless not being able to provide more for them than, you know, a few dollars here and there, or even some leftover food. And I I don't know. I just, so again, you know, the work that you have been doing and are doing is is fantastic. And I would love, (laughs) before we put the cart ahead of the horse, I would just kind of love to talk about what, how you got to where you are today doing the work that you're doing. I was a Monopoly champ of my sixth grade class growing up outside of Atlanta. (laughs) And I went home and told my parents that night at dinner that I was going to be a landlord when I grew up. And they just looked at me kind of strange and said, okay. Um, And I never gave it up. Uh, When I became a teenager, my father encouraged me to go get my CPA, certified public accountant, Um, certification. So I went to Georgia State, uh, got my accounting degree, sat for the exam, passed it, and went straight into real estate. And I have been there ever since. This has been my career, and and I just love it. That's amazing. You know, I... 
I admittedly have only started to pay attention to what the real estate market looks like, but obviously it's, there's been so many ups and downs, 2008, 2009, that was a, a very uh, tense time, I'm sure. So in the history of you working within that industry, I mean, what, what have you, what have you seen and experienced? I know that's a very broad question, but I leave it up to interpretation. So I think the main thing that I've noticed, at least recently, which is contributing to the affordability crisis, is that housing has become a commodity, a yeah. tradable commodity. Yeah. Uh, main, main, many investors are now in the housing space, many institutions. That is one of the things that technology has done to our industry. It used to be that it was impossible to manage single family homes you know, scattered sites, single family homes, like 10 here, 20 in this city. But the softwares have enabled basically investors and institutions basically to build huge, huge consolidated portfolios. And as a result, you know, it's become a commodity. They can raise rents at their discretion and they're not local anymore. That's so frustrating. And it's it's especially frustrating and it makes me kick myself because, you know, there were times and perhaps still are times where, you know, from a, from an investor standpoint, it can be very profitable, but then there's always a flip side of the coin. And I, you know, I, it's if, if I had the, the means at some point in my life to, to do so, you, you want to make your money grow. So I, 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 see I see myself being torn in both directions I mean how do you how do you feel about that I mean obviously companies well Zillow last year they they got themselves in a, in a pretty uh, bad pickle from what I understand over investing and not having the resources to uh, properly manage those homes is that correct I mean th- there are ways to overdo it absolutely and and our there is a graveyard of investors that have overdone it um, it is by virtue of being a commodity, housing is very much cyclical. And a lot of investors get into the space without the experience or the understanding of how the markets affect them. And they tend to overpay or not manage their properties correctly. And let's face it, in the end, mother nature isn't in charge. So you eventually will have to replace your roof, the paint, you have to make the property look good, or you're not able to attract that tenant and that rent that you need to pay your mortgage. Yeah. So it's very much a, a, it's a sophisticated business and you see a lot of novices get into it. And I would say more than half of them fail eventually. Yeah. I, I mean, do you, again, this is, this is a very self-serving question, but I, I mean, do you see the market slowing down anytime in the near future for, for, for home buyers, not investors? Absolutely, because home buyers can afford X. Let's yeah. say the average home buyer can afford two thousand dollars a month. Yeah. As interest rates go down, the price goes up because you're able to because you're have a lower interest rate. You're still able to hit that two thousand a month even at a higher price. Right. But the reversion happens as interest rates go up. So you know you used to be three point five percent. In the good old days, six months ago, um, forever ago, and that, yeah. you know, you could afford a $300,000 home. Well, at 5%, it now is a $270,000 home. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, our industry is very much connected to interest rates yeah. and interest rates are going up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um and I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that things will eventually slow down. And I, I look forward to that day. But I, you know, I am mostly interested in, in speaking with you about uh, the way that you're helping to address inequality, as we kind of hinted at the beginning. And you know, working to uh, create equitable housing and and get people the give people the opportunity to to have places to live. And what really inspired you to help those in need in that sense? I was very fortunate when I got into real estate, I worked for other people for 10 years and then I started my own company and I learned how to raise money, which is critical. Um, At the same time, I also started volunteer for the local Atlanta community food bank. And I love the mission of the food bank is to build community through hunger. Well, I kind of adopted that mantle around housing. I feel like you can build community around housing. So as I raised money and started my career, I've owned and managed over 3,000 apartment units throughout Atlanta. I realized that, you, that housing has a very deeper impact on families. 
And I realized that housing actually dictates the performance of a local school. Yeah. Um, I put together a large fund and bought a, a 446-unit apartment community in North Atlanta that was severely blighted. I had over 200 units with black mold or that were burned out. And I learned, I learned that the local school was failing because of my apartment community. And, and a lot of people don't link the two, right. but this property was so large. I had 990 bedrooms because I had a lot of four bedroom right. units that we were about a third of the school. And the fact that the apartment community was in turmoil caused the school to be in turmoil. That was a real aha moment for me to realize that some of the apartment communities I was buying and operating actually dictated the performance of the local school. That's extremely interesting. When the, so the, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this in a nuanced way. I mean, when you say that is dictating the performance of the school, what plays into that? I mean, obviously schools need funding, but what, I mean, is it the the work ethic of the children going to the schools? I mean, you're not displacing anybody, I'm assuming. So I, what, when you improve a person's living condition, is that it just improve their quality of life, subsequently improving their initiative to learn? Or am I, did I have that completely wrong? No, you said the correct word, displacement. Okay. So one of the biggest factors that causes schools to fail and children to underperform academically is called transiency. If there's any teachers listening to this podcast, they're raising their hand going, yes, I know exactly what transiency is. Transiency is the movement of children in and out of school during a school year. Every time a child moves, they lose three months of education. The fact that you have a large high transiency apartment community, well, this local school became a spin cycle. And think about it. You're a school teacher and you start your class with 25 students. Well, within, you know, by the end of the school year, you've only got 70% of those students left and you've got 30% new students. We have met families where they've moved their children's school two or three times a year. And that's becoming pandemic right now. We're seeing it a lot in the low-income families where they're chasing affordability. And every time they move because they've defaulted on their lease or, you know, the landlord raises their rent, they take their children out of the school and they move to the next school and the next school and the next school. And their children are, they're traumatized. They're not reading at grade level. They cannot keep up academically. So transiency is the number one thing that causes schools to fail and trade, there is no amount of money you can spend from an educational perspective to address transiency. Yeah. There's there's no plan for it. So we see schools in Atlanta where they're spending per per student over twenty thousand a year, which is twice what other school systems spend, and they still have high transiency and the children still are are low readers and not achieving um, passing their Georgia milestone test. Yeah. So this is how housing affects schools. And this is why landlords need to be really sensitive on how they raise rents and how they create a stable community for their families. Absolutely. I, um, so and there are obviously going to be many shades of gray here and there are, I'm sure there are good landlords. I am fairly happy with mine. I'm, I'm sure there are very bad landlords. And I don't know if saying slumlord is, is the right way of saying it or if that's too derogatory or not. But when somebody is intentionally pricing families out of homes, to me, that just seems short-sighted. And it's obviously greatly affecting the community in which these apartment complex, complexes exist. I mean, is 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 that what it is? A short, uh, a narrow... Um, I guess, narrow-minded vision, or do, are they just trying to get these families out of the area in general, not my problem type thing? I, I'm curious why, aside from profits, they would want to price somebody out of a home. There are two types of landlords, and I'm going to say this politely. There okay. are commodity landlords. That's a landlord that comes in and they just want to push rents as fast as they can, Right. You know, sell the property as fast as they can and make millions of dollars. Right. Then you have the community landlords. I consider myself a community landlord that really looks at the social capital of the community and preservation. So it's a great business model because the properties that I've owned long-term where we intentionally keep our rents low and affordable, you know, we intentionally put in free after-school programs. We intentionally work with the local federally qualified health clinic. 
where we create that stable environment where the tenants have time to build social capital. Yeah. I am 100% leased. I collect 99 cents on the dollar. I don't have high transiency and the expense that comes with it. So I would say my profitability at my properties, you know, once I get them stabilized, because it can take years to get them stabilized, is probably better than the commodity landlord that comes in for the quick flip. Yeah, absolutely. In regard to stabilization, I mean, you mentioned that it it can take years. Do you get, I shouldn't say, I'm, I'm sure you probably do, but what kind of pushback do you get from not necessarily other business or owners or or landlords, but I mean, from tenants who, let's just say from, you know, people who perhaps you want to deal drugs out of, out of uh, their units or they, or don't necessarily have the best interest of the community in mind. So what we find in these, especially marginalized communities or low income, high transiency communities is they're, they're in a crisis of trust. Yeah. So we go in there and your tenants don't trust you. They don't trust their neighbors. Um, One of the first things we do when we buy a blighted, you know, burned out, boarded up apartment community is you have to address security. Right, right. Because without security, you will not have a stable platform to do anything. Right. Um, But it's, I've come to realize that a lot of the tenants, when we come into these properties, especially ones that have lived there for two, three generations. Right. They don't know their neighbor. (laughs) I mean, it's, it can take years to build trust because it's a matter of life and death on how you associate with your neighbors. And it's taken me a while to realize that. So, uh, so we do have pushback. I call it the great sift, the great society sift when we go in because we start sifting through the tenants and the ones that want to live in stabilized communities that we can build trust with that are going to be good neighbors are the ones that we're trying to eventually attract and retain. And it can take years, right. but in the end, it's really worth it to build those communities. That's, 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 that's fantastic. I, I'm so, I, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed with all that you've done. And I, I, I hope that other people are doing it in other larger and I'm assuming smaller communities as well throughout the country. I mean, is this, is this something that you see popping up um, elsewhere throughout big cities? I mean, is this something that you're trying to spread, uh, you know, not, not just in Atlanta, not Georgia, but across the country? Absolutely. One of my bucket list items is to start a revolution yeah. any size. <laughs> and this is a small revolution that I'm starting as part of my bucket list. But yeah, I want to get the word out that there is a great business model out there for community landlords. Um, so one of the things I've done is I've actually written a book. It's called Blighted. It is the biography of a 244-unit apartment community in Atlanta. And the book comes out in September by New South Books. And basically, it's, the like I said, the biography of, of a blighted apartment community. And what I did is I actually bought this property in 2018. Um, it was boarded up. At least parts of it were boarded up. Parts of it were occupied. We had 130 tenants there. Um, not all of them were legal. It had one of the highest 9-11 call rates in the city. The, the environment was very violent. Yeah. Um, we had, of the 459 9-11 calls we had the year before we bought it, 270 were for violent crimes, a lot of gunfire, you know, armed robbery, fighting. So um, what I did was when I bought it, I started following 15 people and interviewing them. And, and I've never done this before. I've never really yeah. sat down with my tenants and heard their stories. Um, the police officers, the school principal, the pest control, the property manager, my on-site security. You know, So basically the book is their stories of how they're impacted by poverty yeah. and housing, but the underlying conversation is all the metrics around it. So the metrics about, well, you know, we had 90 pest calls the first year or first week we bought it. A lot of them were for roaches. Well, I did not realize roaches caused asthma. So as a result, the children living at this property, when we bought it, there were 68 of them. Every single one of them was severely traumatized by the gunfire. Um, The majority of them had severe asthma because of the infestation. Um, all of them were right. low readers. 
And it is your as you're hearing the stories or the interviews, like with the principal, you realize she's talking about the problems she's dealing with coming from our apartment community. And then when you talk to the tenants, you realize that, you know, their children, you know, they couldn't work that day because they were in the emergency room with their child with asthma. Um, and then when you just start mixing it all in with all the research around brain development, we are raising the next generation of poverty in these low-income marginalized apartment communities. What um, I, I had, I had no idea that that roaches caused asthma. That that uh, that that sort of thing is just. I mean, it, it seems to me that, like you said, you don't discover it until you're actually within that environment and atmosphere. I mean, were, were there any other? eye openers that you've experienced. I know you were talking about metrics that you, you talk about in your book. I mean, what are some of the other things that you've come to see through following these, these families and uh, these individuals around? There's a lot of dignity. Uh, there's, there is dignity in poverty. Yeah. Um, some of our families, and one of the main ones I follow, Mrs. Humphreys, she is now raising the fourth generation at the property. She is 83 years old. She retired when she was 80. She was a domestic actually working in my neighborhood in, in the city of Atlanta. Yeah. She lives, this property is south of Atlanta. So she's someone who I would probably see a couple times a year driving through my neighborhood. All right? right. Here she is in a marginalized apartment community that any normal person would never even dream of stepping foot in. But she's someone who one of my neighbors trusted to watch their four children. Right. Um, she worked full time. Her daughter worked for Fulton County. She worked in the, the, she was a custodian in the judicial department. Her daughter worked for Fulton County in the sheriff's office. So here you have three generations, you know, working full-time jobs, respectable full-time jobs. They're very religious. They're very into their faith and they're living in poverty and they're, um, their great grandsons in the family were completely traumatized. They have asthma. And they were not reading at at standard level. And that was a real eye-opener for me, is here's people working hard and they're doing everything right. And they're now in this horrific housing situation because they couldn't afford anything else. Yeah, that's... And I'm going to share one more no, thing please, with please, you. The, yes. other, the other thing I really learned in all my research about housing and education and healthcare is that Trauma actually affects brain development. And as you, and I would, I mean, I walked with the children to and from school and, you know, observed them in class. And our principal was very gracious to be involved in this whole project. I I researched her four times. Walking back from school every day, you would have to go through just groups of drug dealers, you know, with their guns. (laughs) And I just couldn't imagine growing up in that environment. Um, so it's no wonder these children are not are are not achieving academic success because the environment simply does not allow it. Absolutely, you know I um, I really enjoy talking about education, and I I think there there's an opportunity that for us to improve upon how we we teach our children. I think so much of that has to do with emotional intelligence and and experiential learning, and when I talk about education, it, it, it's it's so easy for me, and I'm sure many others, to forget or to to just silo things off. We we put education in its own bucket, and it's it's independent of everything else. But when we actually have a conversation like this, you realize that if you go to school hungry, you're going to not be able to learn as well. Or if you're not, if you're terrified of actually getting to, to or from school, you're not going to learn as well. All of these things actually play in to each other, and it's it's so it's so important that we actually remember that it's not just one aspect of, of education that needs fixed. It's, it's everything that goes into a, a child's life and well-being. I mean, when you are helping these communities rebuild for, I mean, I, I think that's probably the best word. I mean, you, the, the, those who have got fallen behind, how do you help them catch up? I mean, it sounds like you're providing resources, at least through after school programs, but actually getting to a place where they have the opportunity to, to go to college and, you know, get a career that they've wanted. So one of my philosophies in life is you always start 
from a position of strength. Yeah. And even if your position of strength is teeny, I mean teeny, right. at least is a position of strength. And our position of strength in these communities is that we control the environment. Yes. So we start, we purchase communities near low performing schools. That's our business model. If it's in a high performing school, I'm not buying that apartment community. Right. Um, but we partner with the school and we have on-site free after-school programs. So one of our positions of strength is convenience. Yeah. Children just simply come back to their apartment community. The parents have to register them, you know, and sign paperwork to keep them in the, in the after-school program. The first year that we started the after-school program at Summerdale, we did not focus on reading and writing. We only focused on social-emotional right. because when – I was there the first day they started the program. If you saw these children, they were just completely defeated. They wouldn't even look at us. They would. There was no smiles. You could tell they were traumatized. Right. Um, within a year, it was a whole different ball game. They're excited. They now know their neighbors. They trust the other kids. You know, they have help. The social emotional learning teaches them how to advocate for themselves and build confidence. And within one year, the children in our after-school program, our Star C after-school program, actually outperformed their peers on the federal competency test, That's which great. was surprising to us. We thought it would yeah. take a couple years, but within the first year, they were outperforming. And I'll tell you the other thing. Here's where we get to the business model where I win is when we first bought this property, the trash was horrific. Yeah. You, the people just simply did not respect their environment well, the after-school program through the social-emotional learning, including um, how to love your community, I mean, the trash is down 95%. The kids now um, admonish adults who throw trash down. You know, they've really starting to take back their community and, like I said, build that community capital. I mean, this yeah. is where they live. Yeah. And it's so encouraging to see the children today. Uh, it's, it's night and day. I mean, they're very polite. They raise their hand. They say, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Um, it, it's, it's very encouraging. That's amazing. What else goes into the, the social and, and emotional learning? I, I am curious about that. And I, um, I wonder if critical thinking education is, is brought into that as well. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're helping children understand what it means to be emotionally intelligent and actually understand what it means to have these, these, emotional relationships with others and how to respect one another, which is, which is amazing. So I'm, I'm just curious what goes into that. The main thing is, is building confidence. It's a whole movement and it probably started a few years ago. I had actually never heard of social emotional learning until we bought this property in 2018. Yeah. And like I said, it's a big educational movement right now. And I think a lot of educators are realizing you cannot address reading, you know, writing math and, and the basic sciences if the children don't have the confidence right. or the social emotional ability to learn. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not a teacher. I'm a landlord. I know there's a lot of, of articles and research on this topic. Yeah. Um, but I, I know absolutely with what we're doing, it works. I, I, I love hearing that. Um, I want to ask a question and I, I, I want to make you know, make the claim that, that I'm, I'm not very, I'm not a super political person. I obviously have my beliefs and opinions that I, I try to keep to myself uh, as, as, as often as I can. But I, I, I guess I'll ask in the work that you're doing, are there people or groups of people whose interests you're going against? I mean, are there people who would have, would feel better if you did not succeed? Uh, I don't know. If, well, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> of course, the drug dealers. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not very happy with us right now. Right. Uh, you know, I've been pleasantly surprised how encouraging people are and how the resource lanes are opening up to what we're doing. Yeah. Um, I, we do not have many people who are critical Good. of our work, which is, like I said, encouraging. I, I expected criticism. Yeah. But to, so far to this date, we have not received a lot of criticism. Um, I would say if I had a little bit of criticism, it's from the commodity landlords right. because they don't like seeing someone that's doing things differently than they, right. them. Right. So I, I would say I do have some landlords that, that speak out against what we're doing, but that doesn't bother us a bit. We know what our North Star is, and, and that's where that's the direction we go. Absolutely. So – 
when you're going up against commodity landlords, I mean, this is obviously a capitalistic system. So, I mean, you're you're buying property that they had every opportunity to buy, correct? I mean, you are you're doing it in a way that makes sense for our economy, or is it, do I not have that correct? It has become so com- competitive, just like buying a home. Right. Apartments are incredibly competitive yeah. right now. So we shifted our business model and actually started buying land okay. next to low-performing schools and building. We That's had nice. our first deal. Yeah, it's very exciting. We had our first deal break ground last September. It's 306 units next to um, Mount Zion Elementary in South Atlanta. We have partnered with uh, the county housing authority and the county school system and the local elementary school with the principal. The majority of the families attending the school live in marginalized um, trailer parks and probably pay about $1,200 a month in rent. We're going to be able to offer our brand new units for about seven to $900. So actually if they come over to our property, they're going to be able to save money and put more disposable income into the economy and their children are going to be in a much better living environment with the after school program, the summer camp and the partnership with the local federally qualified health clinic. So we're excited about that. And then we have probably five more deals in the queue um, between Birmingham, Atlanta, some cities in rural Georgia, and then South Carolina. That's amazing. So it's starting to expand. That's fantastic. And so you're you're probably starting to touch on the answer to this question. I mean, how, where do you go? I mean, how do you start to scale this? And I mean, it sounds like you're already doing so. I mean, are you just, are you, you capturing interest from surrounding communities and it's just spreading? What, uh, what does that look like to, to scale this nationally? Politically, this is such a hot topic right now. Um, We are already seeing with some of the pre-marketing we're doing for the books that other states are reaching out to us, other municipalities, and and that's very exciting for me. Um, So I cannot own all the apartments, but I certainly can educate other landlords and municipalities about how to build relationships that focus more on the the relationship between housing and education. Um, we so we have a nonprofit called Starcy, and Starcy does the wraparound services. They they run the after school programs and you know the partnership with with Kaboom Playground and the partnership with the utility companies to reduce the energy burden. And Starcy has a monthly breakfast. It's the last Thursday of every month, and we've been doing this for about five years now, and it's been encouraging because we've probably now had about a dozen landlords come to one of our yeah. breakfasts, and they're now embracing the model. So that's one of the way that we're amplifying it is just simply motivating other landlords on how to reimagine how they deliver affordable housing. That's fantastic. Um, I really like, I mean, I love the realization you had about the, how closely schools, you know, are, are, are tied to communities. I mean, is that, it is, it's kind of surprising to me that that wasn't realized so much sooner. And I mean, I don't want to discredit you for anything you discovered that that's a fantastic discovery. I just, I'm curious what took uh, the, the world so long to say, Hey, if we've got a healthy uh, community here, we're going to have better schools. So all the people listening who are school teachers or educators, pat yourself on the back, you know, this (laughs) educators know this landlords don't. What I've found in my journey in this space is the resources are in their lane. You know, educators focus on education. Police officers focus on public safety. Healthcare workers, you know, focus on healthcare. Landlords focus on housing. Foundations focus on whatever their mission is. You know, banks have a mission. Everyone has a mission. And when I look at these communities, I see all the resource lanes bouncing off each other. I'll give you a great example. We met with the CEO of a Fortune 200 company in Atlanta for lunch to show him our model. And he was bemoaning the fact that their company had invested $5 million, $5 million, okay, in a low-performing school in the city of Atlanta, and it did not move the performance one iota. That $5 million did not change anything about the school. So I went back and researched the school. It was 100% fed by marginalized apartment communities that were in horrible condition. So you can't make that investment in that school 
it would have been better spent going into the housing. But, you know, everyone's fighting for the same resources. Of course. If if we just realigned resources, I think we would have much better outcomes for communities. Absolutely. So I, I, I don't want to, where, where did that money go? I, I'm just, I'm curious. I mean, what, what, if the, if the money was not able to provide the performance of or improve the performance of the students, where did that money go? Did it go into improvements within the school, like the actual physical structure or what, what, what happened to it? State of the art technology, yeah. laptops, okay. new computers, screens, sure. um, teachers with, you know, expert expertise in certain education, um, dinner after school, um, things for the family. I'm right. sure part of it did go pay to pay rent. But what happens is, is all that investment in that student walked out the door when the family had to move. Yeah. And then in comes another student with the same issue. So it, it really did not improve the outcome. And, and it doesn't surprise me one bit. Absolutely. And that kind of raises an interesting question in my head. I mean, if there are X number of dollars that are going toward a community, is are there going to be schools fighting you for that money when ultimately you are trying to imp- you're trying to improve the schools, but you need to do so at a at a much lower level? And that's what I'm saying. Everyone's in their lane. Yeah. And we need to marinate the lanes. Absolutely. And that's what I'm trying to do with the book. And it's you know when I do public speaking and I ask the audience how many of you are in healthcare and you know so many raise their hand and how many are you in education and then I start showing them the metrics of how it's all interconnected. Yeah. They all have their aha moment. And the solution to me is to get everyone in a room to work together and to determine the resources. Because if that, um, if that apartment community has a partnership with a federally qualified health clinic and creates a medical home for those low income tenants, well, guess what? They're not going to the emergency room every time they sneeze. Right. It costs $2,000 on average every time a tenant goes to an emergency room. We can get them over to that federally qualified health clinic for $50. So when the educators realize that housing can really help them improve their bottom line, yeah. and um, I'm sorry, when healthcare workers realize that and they realize that having a partnership with apartment communities and, ha- and, and landlords can actually help them meet their educational metrics – when everyone realizes how it's yeah. so interconnected and if we invest the resources in the proper sequence, everyone wins. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's great. That's a great realization. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious and I, I don't necessarily know how to ask this question. I, are, I don't, I don't know why my interest is drawn toward uh, sport sporting programs within schools. And I, I, am curious what effect, uh, these sorts of communities would have positive effect. I, I would assume have on, uh, you know, children who are gifted and talented, not, not necessarily just in sports. I, I guess I'm asking in that context, but in all, in several different areas that allow them more opportunities following high school. So we don't really get into sports. Um, yeah. We've had like the Atlanta Braves and, and the Hawks approach us to do sports courts, but right. we really focus on education and housing Absolutely. and healthcare. Um, in our after school programs, we do have the summer camps where you can have the athletes come and, and teach classes and things like that. But, you know, it gets down to if you don't have a stable home and an opportunity to access resources, it, it, it sports to me is, is more of a, uh, um, a luxury yeah, at this time. Makes sense. Now I will tell you in a lot of our communities, soccer is king Yeah, and that's a very easy sport to promote. You just have a green grassy area and a soccer ball. So, you yeah. know, we're starting to build stronger partnerships with soccer leagues. Um, as long as the children are making good grades. That's great. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as you're as you're spreading uh, awareness and interest and in, and uh, as you uh, prepare for your, your book to come out, which is really exciting, I'm excited to to pick it up myself. Um, are are you are you essentially selling the model to to different communities, or are you actually are you coming in and helping them implement it? I'm I'm curious how hands on you can be, or how hands on you want to be as as this uh, as this grows this movement. We have what's called TriStar University, which we started about six years ago, and it allows municipal leaders and landlords and whoever wants to come in and actually go through 
the process of how communities fail and how you rebuild yeah. them. And we're working on putting that online right now. So anyone can attend it and, and basically see the program. Um, and, you know, if anyone has questions afterwards, I think I'm going to be really busy, but I'm really looking forward to all the conversations. Yes. To me, this is a simple model, but it's hard to execute because it does require quite a bit of capital. Um, so, you know, as I get out and do a lot of public speaking, I, I'm getting more and more communities that are interested in the model. And I've actually um, started a company with new partners coming in to work with us to, to basically help amplify it and to help communities develop the resources. And how, what, what does developing the resources look like? I mean, are you getting corporate uh, investments? I mean, when you're raising those, those funds, is it, is it grant-based? Are you getting uh, f- funds a- as donations? I'm, I, I'm, I'm curious about that. Housing is very community oriented. Yeah. So what's going on in, you know, Denver, Colorado versus, you know, Ames, Iowa versus Atlanta versus Miami is very localized right. and every community has access to different resources. You know, there's very few companies like Amazon and Microsoft right. um, that are t- actually have housing initiatives and they put billions of dollars into it. Believe it or not, that is sounds like a lot of money and they'll have impact. Um, we're trying to get more corporations to buy into the model, but buy into it locally. Right. Um, not necessarily come through us, but to work with their local landlords. You know, getting to corporations, housing, corporations are realizing housing is a, a real crisis for them because they can't get right. the employees because, you know, they now have to live 60 miles away to be able to afford their housing. Yeah. So, you know, it's in everyone's best interest to approach this. Um, but... Every community has access to tax, federal tax credits. Um, some of the smaller communities might not have the housing authorities to ba- basically execute the model. So we're looking at ways at, at how smaller communities can maybe work with partners to bring affordability into their community through tax credits. Right. Um, there are a lot of national impact funds that are out there now that will invest. Um, churches are a great source of land. School systems are a great source of land. There's lots of resources out there, and it's just a matter of of basically training people on how to access those resources and build out the model um, from all the available resources, basically. What... For, for somebody looking for those resources, what, what, where's the best place to start? Um, I, I know anybody who's tried to find uh, a form on a government website can be quite difficult. I, I imagine you've probably compiled something somewhere, correct? Um, we have not compiled. Well, there's housing authorities. Okay. Most cities and communities have housing authorities. It's time consuming. Yeah. You know, you don't just go in and get a piece of paper and now you're a landlord. Right. You have to go in and learn the business. Um, I learned by working for other people, but I've decided to make a career out of this. You can go work for the local landlords, um, work for real estate companies, go get your real estate license and dive in that way. I mean, every community has housing and every community has, you know, like association of realtors. Yeah, That's one way to get involved. Um, it can be a very lucrative career. Um, and so start from getting licensed, building your education in the space, and then you'll start seeing opportunities in investing in apartment communities or housing in your own community. Yeah. And then you'll learn how the relationships are developed, the relationships with the banks and with the, you know, the housing authorities. You know, you just grow from basically getting your realtor license is a very simple way to get started. That's great. That's, that's, that's great to know. And uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm hoping, um, and I'm looking forward to what you're doing. I just, I, I want to see it spread and I'm excited to have the opportunity to share this conversation. Um, I mean, personally, I mean, what, uh, what have, I, I mean, I, I know you're, you're get you're preparing to launch your book. Um, is there anything else in your life that you're currently working on that you're, you're excited to, to kind of, lean back into. I, I, I don't know. What uh, what else do you have going on? Starsea, our nonprofit, is based in Atlanta. We are going to be expanding into Alabama and South Carolina with some deals that we're working on, as I mentioned yeah. earlier. But also, I am starting to talk with some other national landlords who are starting to go into the space. They offer resident wraparound services and there's no national standard of best practices. So one of the things I'm working on right now is I'm, I'm talking to 
Enterprise Community Foundation about building a national platform for resident service providers. Very excited about it. We already have landlords in about 30 states who want to participate. And we have just started those conversations. So I'm hopeful within the next year or two that we'll actually launch our first meeting and start coming up with standards for landlords that want to start offering, you know, after school programs, summer camps, or even partnering with their local hospital to bring the smile train to their um, apartment community that offers dental services for children yeah. or the food bank. Um, there's a lot of cities in the South that have high energy burden for families living in poverty. Right. Um, Atlanta's one of them. Um, the average family living below the poverty line spends 11% of their income on utilities or they don't run their electricity during the summer, right. which of course causes mold, which you know builds contributes to a bad indoor air quality. But anyway, there is a national movement for energy utility companies to start giving free upgrades to affordable apartment communities. Uh, Georgia Power does it in Georgia, and we've had four apartment communities now get all these free energy upgrades that helps our families save money. That's so that's another thing that a lot of landlords don't know about. So as we build out this platform nationally, we'll be able to develop the national partnerships and share those resources with landlords that want to be in the space. That's fantastic. You know, I had wanted to ask earlier, but now that we're talking about energy again, are there opportunities for you um, as a landlord to implement uh, renewable energy sources such as uh, solar panels on top of the buildings? Or is that, is that, do you, would you prefer working in line with uh, the energy providers within the communities? I would love to put solar on my apartment communities. I actually have it on my home Yeah. and I drive an electric car Nice. and I have solar hot water. So I'm a big fan of yeah. renewable energy. Unfortunately, the laws in Georgia do not allow apartment communities to put solar on their roofs. There's a rule where you can only have one solar panel per address. And think about it. I have 244 homes right. under one address, so I can only have one solar panel. So there's not a way to separately meter each apartment unit. So it's kind of a dysfunctional model. I hope the Georgia is working on this. I know we have a new CEO at Georgia Power, yeah. and we really need to do something. So right now, that is not a reality for what I'm doing, but I'm watching it. And I hope one day it will be because I think that would really save a lot of families um, from basically, you know, the impact yes. of poverty and e energy burden. Absolutely. I mean, why, I, I'm sure I can answer this question, but why is that policy even in place? I mean, is it to pad the pockets of um, certain people? But I, that just seems like a, a, a ridiculous law to, to come up with when it could help so many people. I have no idea. I have yeah. no idea why it's in place. And and all I know is about Georgia. I don't know about other states. Yeah. But I know that the, the current infrastructure around putting solar panels on affordable housing apartment communities just doesn't work yeah. in the current environment. Well, that's too bad. I hope, I really do hope that changes. Um, I, 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 as, as everything shifts, I mean, including uh, the way we produce and consume electricity, I don't know. I just did everything needs to start working in line. And that just sounds like it would be a, uh, it'd be a game changer for uh, what you're trying to accomplish. We walk a lot of the units and see the yeah. impact. So you have a family living on $12 an hour. There's two children. They can't run their right. air conditioning and you see the mold. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, I, you know, granted here I'm, I'm in a much more temperate climate, but down South that, that uh, during the summer, that, that has to, there have to be times where that's unbearable and even dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now you have to open your windows, yeah. Yeah. which, you know, is dangerous too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Margie, I, I really appreciate you taking time to chat with me. Um, what, uh, if, if there are, I know I'm going to ask a, a, a kind of a somewhat of a similar question toward the end of the episode here, but I mean, what, what, for people listening and they have the ability to impact change in their communities, I mean, what, what is the best place for them to start uh, if they want to follow the model that you've created? Basically, I think to learn about the model, um, our nonprofit, again, is star-c.org. And I'm going to start posting more on my company is called TriStar Invest. So it's www.tristarinvest.com. 
where we have not put up TriStar University yet, but it should be put up in the next couple months. I'm actually teaching the, another class in September at a convention in Kansas, and I'm looking forward to it. So basically to learn about the model and to amplify it. That's great. And um, you said your book's coming out in September, is that what you said? Yes. And it's New South Books is the publisher and it's called Blighted. That's incredible. Um, where will it, will it be available in all bookstores and Amazon? Yes. Perfect. Well, I will, uh, I look forward to seeing that come out. I look forward to grabbing it myself. And um, I, again, I just, I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to not only talk, but all for everything that you're doing as well. I mean, you're, you're obviously impacting many, many, many lives. And uh, for, for people who, you know, have unfortunately n- not for lack of trying, but they've, they've, not been able to help themselves and having somebody help you lift yourself up. It's that's, that is so incredible to do. And I, I'm so thankful for that. Well, you're very welcome. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to interview me on your podcast and on your program. Absolutely. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned, I, I do have a few closing questions that I would like to ask. And this first one, it's, um, it, it is similar to what I just asked, but I am curious if you have uh, something specific. What resources are you looking for to continue your personal mission? Um, whether it's, it's specifically in relation to helping these communities or, or something else, what are you looking for to continue growing? So I set personal goals by decade, and in this decade of my life, my personal goal, and this may sound a little bit off, but my personal goal was to listen to the universe, not be caught up in a checklist, not be caught up with all these deadlines, but to truly listen to what's going on around me. And I think that's what led me to this journey of wanting to sit with my tenants, really take the time to listen to what was going on in our communities, you know, interview my police officers and my school principals. And it wasn't what I thought, Yeah, you know, it wasn't so cut and dry. And when you realize the humanity that lives in housing, um, it really changes your opinion and your model of doing business and your basically desire to want to deliver. It makes you more of a compassionate capitalist when you truly see the humanity and the dignity of the people living there. And I'm not saying everyone's like that, but there are a lot of people out there that are very proud and deserve our respect despite their income. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So in relation to what you're looking for, are are you, would you call on others to to do uh, something similar? Yes, I would. To take time to really listen to the universe yeah, and to, to be tuned into it and um, to see where it takes your, li- your life's journey. I love that. I love that. All right. My next question for you, um, if you could name one book that's just had a profound impact in your life, what would that book be and why? You know, I would have to say it's the book I wrote <laughs> and I'm not, yes. again, promoting my book, but just listening to all these people living in a place that your average person would quickly drive by and so discredit and so stigmatize and getting in there and really listening to people, but documenting it. Um, The intention wasn't really to write a book, but as I continued documenting and interviewing and hearing the stories, I I had no choice. You have to publish this. You have to let people know that, You know, poverty is a very real thing. Um, People that live in scary looking housing, high crime housing still are entitled to dignity. And I'll I'll take it one step further. Even the drug dealers that we ended up arresting and the, the property in the book, Somerdale, was a regional drug hub. We ended up arresting 11 people of all races. I mean, it was a very, very diverse people. None of them lived at the property. So, which told us it was a regional drug hub, but I started following them on Facebook, some of them, and you know, they're in college, you know, they show on their Facebook page that they're (laughs) volunteering at events and they're drug dealers. So these are still people that in some way are, are children. They're, they have children. They're, they are brothers and sisters and sons. You know, they still are entitled to dignity. They just made some bad choices. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's something to, of course, be cognizant of and, and not something that I, 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 of course, am as guilty as anybody else that 
if I, if I driving through a community that I perceive to be quote unquote unsafe or, or not fit for, for, for how I'm feeling, it's just, you, you forget to have that, that compassion and you and realize that there are people out there who are struggling and they're suffering and everybody needs that dignity, as you said, and, or has that dignity. And, uh, I think it's just a, a very important reminder. I was inspecting this horrible apartment community. I mean, it, it, I was with armed security yeah. inspecting this unit to look at buying it. And I'll never forget, it was so obvious, the drug hub there. It was five men that were always sitting in the same chair every time I went there over a month. Yeah. And we had to inspect these units. And half the property was just caved in and black mold, but he was living in a building that was still viable. So I'll never forget approaching these five men. And one of them stood up and said, are you here for the inspection? And he introduced himself, shook my hand and proudly toured his unit, which was spotlessly clean with matching dish towels. And he was telling me that his mother raised him right. He had very good housekeeping um, skills and he's a drug dealer. And I was, it just, it was profound for me because yeah. I was kind of nervous about meeting right. him, but he goes to church and he has his business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have, have you felt, I mean, have there been times where you've felt unsafe going into one of these communities initially? Of course. Yeah. Of course. And what got me over the fear of Summerdale is after I met the tenants and realized this was their home. I mean, their yeah. children walk through these people every day. It again, made me more compassionate Absolutely. and it, I don't want to say I just, I'm not, I'm not, don't pay attention to what's going on around me. Right. But I will also tell you, I'm very privileged as a, a woman and I'm white Right. When I walk through these apartments, I don't look like anyone. Right. And I think there's some respect there. And I always dress up. I always wear nice dresses. And, and I'm always very respectful yeah. when you know you're dealing with the drug dealers. Absolutely. Um, and I usually have someone with me. Um, but for the most part, everyone's respectful That's until cool. they're arrested. <laughs> right. So. Right. Um, no, I appreciate you sharing that. And, uh, my last question for you, if you could leave the audience with one call to action to live their lives by, or one that you live your life by, what would that be? It would be to listen to the universe. What I said earlier, to really pay attention to what's going on around you. I love that. And to look at the world differently, um, maybe through the eyes of someone that is, you know, a school teacher or, you know, living in poverty or, you know, basically a healthcare worker and, and to have compassion for them. Yes. And, and I've learned a lot. It's really helped me personally grow. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Margie, thank you again so incredibly much for, for everything. Um, if people would like to learn more about you, if they'd like to find you online, if they'd like to gain resources um, that we've mentioned previously, what are some of the best places for people to find you? Well, I'm on Facebook, Margie Stagmeyer, M-A-R-J-Y. And LinkedIn and um, all the social media. Um, or if you want to attend a Starsea Breakfast, you can register at www.star-c.org and then you'll click on, you'll see events, upcoming events, um, you know, and um, basically get involved. Go get your real estate license if you want to get into the space. That's a great way to start. Perfect. And th- those breakfasts, are they local to Atlanta or are they virtual as well? They're virtual. Oh, awesome. Okay, fantastic. And one last question I did have for you are, will there be an audio version of your new book? We're working on that right now. As a matter of fact, my next call is with my publisher and we have a lot of people requesting an audio version. Awesome. Are you are you going to narrate? No, no, I don't think I have that great a voice. <laughs> we'll probably have someone do it for us. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think it'd be a, you'd be a great narrator, but I, regardless, I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to the book. And I, again, I, I appreciate everything you're doing. I will, of course, put all of those links you just mentioned in the show notes. And I, Margie, just thank you so much. Well, Trey, thank you so much for having me part of your podcast. I really appreciate it. Once again, I want to extend my thank you to Margie for joining me on the podcast, as well as the work she's doing, not only in Atlanta, but the revolution that she's starting to create and spread across the United States. I'm so thankful that there's somebody out there 
willing to work hard for the people who need it the most. So thank you again, Margie. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. And of course, thank you all for taking time to listen to the podcast, both today and throughout the previous 147 episodes. It has absolutely meant the world to me. As the podcast starts to wind down, if you would like to stay connected, please follow me on Instagram at Trey Kaufman or on TikTok at Real Trey Kaufman. Thank you all again. And until next time, take care, do better and be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.